Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Tonight, what I'd like to do is start us off with a very familiar passage in Joshua chapter 6 and only read a couple of the verses, but this is of Joshua's great campaign into the promised land and the uh, first victory that he had over Jericho. We're going to just look at two statements that are made there. First of all, in chapter 6, verse 20, where he says, So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets, and it came about when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, that the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took that city. Then in look in verse 24. It says, and they burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. The reason I uh, read that is because in 1972, I had the opportunity to travel to Israel. Been there several times, but on this particular occasion, we had the opportunity to go down to Jericho and uh, explore around some of the ruins of the old city. And as we stood in those archaeological ruins, I happened to be accompanied by a, a liberal theologian and archaeologist who took great delight in telling me about these ruins that I saw before me, in particular the wall that the uh, biblical account said fell down flat. And he informed me that uh, the great British archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon, who, by the way, did the premier work on the excavations of Jericho back in 1950, had established as fact that uh, though the city did suffer some form of cataclysmic collapse, that that had occurred in 1550 B.C., approximately 150 years before Joshua ever came into the promised land and confronted the city of Jericho. And so with kind of a measure of great delight and glee, this theologian told me that archaeology had kind of slam-dunked the Bible and disproved uh, this particular story. And he said, that's just what it is. It's just a, a story, a myth that's been made up. Well, I've thought about that over the years as uh, you at times hear different uh, facts and stories on whether the Bible is true and whether archaeology can prove the Bible and those kind of things, but that always used to trouble me after seeing the ruins of that great city. And then this, uh, this fall, an article came out that uh, uh, shared some different insights, and that came from Dr. Bryant Wood, who is an ancient pottery expert from the University of Toronto. And he had the opportunity here recently to review some of Kenyon's findings, and he published his new findings in the uh, Journal of Biblical Archaeology. You see, the dating of Kenyon's date of when the walls kind of fell down in Jericho were based by Kenyon on her not finding a certain type of pottery that was very popular in 1400 B.C. That's the date that the Bible says the walls fell down. So Wood had a chance to review that as a pottery expert, and he began to see that a mistake was made because Kenyon 
uh, did her dig in what would be considered the poorer part of Jericho, 1400 B.C. And he said that that pottery was very expensive and it would not be found in the poorer part of the city. Being a pottery expert, though, he also went on to say that there were many, many artifacts of pottery found in Jericho by Kathleen Kenyon that were available and were found in Jericho in 1400 B.C., the biblical date. And with that kind of pottery problem out of the way, all of a sudden the Bible and archaeology matched up quite nicely. Because as I've said, Kenyon had already concluded that the city of Jericho had suffered some cataclysmic collapse. She had already said that the walls demonstrated that. On top of that, Kenyon also found bushels of grain on the site, which suggested to her that the city had not fallen after a long siege when all the food supplies would have been used up, but that it was captured very quickly. Kenyon found that the city had also been burned with fire. And if you notice in verse 24, that's what the biblical account says, that after they captured it, they burned the city with fire. Now, when I was in Jericho, uh, looking at the walls, you can still see the fire line that runs around the wall. still there. They recently dated that ash from the firewall, and uh, guess what the date was? 1400 B.C. Therefore, the conclusion by Wood was that it looks to me, he says, as if the biblical story is correct. And Time Magazine reported that a host of experts reviewing Wood's research can find, quote, little fault with it. Says Time, score one for the Bible. Boy, I bet it took a lot of clenched teeth to write that. Score one for the Bible by Time Magazine. The Bible has an impeccable record historically. When you look back on it, it has a, it's a sterling book of history and extremely accurate in all its performances of recording past history. The series that we're about to embark upon, though, we're not going to look past at its past performance. We're going to look at its future predictions of history, not its past performance of recording history, but its predictions of the future of history, because the Bible is both a history book and a book of the future. There are 8,352 verses in the Bible that deal with prophetic material. Prophecy makes up 29% of the Old Testament and 22% of the New Testament. In fact, the only books that don't have some kind of prophetic material in them are Ruth and Song of Solomon from the Old Testament and Philemon and 3 John from the New Testament. Otherwise, almost a third of your Bible deals in some form with prophetic material. And yet, unlike the ancient riddles that you find in a lot of pagan literature that are just that vague riddles, are these broad kind of predictions like Nostradamus gave about the future, or some inaccuracies that are recorded by modern-day prophets like Gene Dixon and others, biblical prophecy is quite clear. A young child could pick up and read the Bible on a number of biblical prophecies, and it would be very clear to that child. It's not vague, and it's not couched in riddles. It's clear. And it's also tied tightly to the flow of history. 
So if you were a historian, you could go back and you could look at these passages of prediction of the future and tie them into history because the Bible is tied to history. And it's extremely detailed in a number of places. And those predictions that have been made that have already come to pass, interestingly enough, there hasn't been one inaccuracy in all of them. If we were just being honest and taking the time to look at the batting record of the Bible as to the prophecies it's already made and which have already come to pass, the Bible would be batting a thousand percent. That's pretty good in any league. How can that be? Well, the Bible itself, itself uh, proclaims in Isaiah 45, Who foretold this long ago and who declared the future from the distant past? And the answer there in Isaiah 45 is, was it not I, the Lord? You know, Jesus, when he was on earth, gave some explicit and detailed statements about his second coming and the signs that would occur before that second coming to his apostles. And at the end of that discourse in Matthew 24, Jesus says, Behold, I have told you in advance. Evidently, there is something about prophecy that has been given to us that is necessary for us in living out the Christian life. Otherwise, God would have not taken the time to give so much of it. As Paul said, all Scripture is profitable. So evidently, prophecy is profitable as well. It certainly sets the, the book of the Bible apart from all the other books that have ever been written. Because no one owns the future, and certainly no man owns the future, but the God who wrote this book does. And he has taken the time to give us some clear indications as to what is to come, even in our day. So I've decided to kind of go back to the future, so to speak, and by going back, I, I mean it's not the first time that I've done this. I went back and studied prophecy as a young Christian when... Uh, I became a Christian in, in the late 60s and early 70s. I kind of cut my spiritual teeth, so to speak, on Hal Lindsey's book, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, and that had a way of kind of motivating me in my Christian faith because I'd look at some of these passages and get excited about the fact that, gosh, this is different than the other books here in the university. There is something here that really does speak clearly to the future, and that was exciting to me. Of course, as time went on in my Christian life, uh, I discovered that uh, Hal Lindsey and others went a little overboard in some of the things they said. There was a lot of exaggeration that occurred uh, during the late 60s as concerning prophecy that, that really tend to sour me and probably a lot of others on really spending some time studying the prophetic statements of Scripture. So prophecy in the late 70s and 80s have fallen on hard times. And uh, the church has not really proclaimed that. We've certainly not done much in that regard as to our preaching here in the church on prophecy. Much of that because of the rumors that were spread and uh, people giving all kinds of personal predictions that they said were really biblical predictions. Uh, maybe you've heard some recently where they've talked about the mark on Gorbachev's head as being the mark of the Antichrist. And uh, I even heard one recently of, of uh, uh, Ronald Reagan when he came to uh, the presidency, they said Ronald Wilson Reagan, and each one of those words has six letters in it, so Ronald Wilson Reagan, 666. Uh, 
crazy stuff like that. And of course, we had the uh, rapture 88 here, where people were making very strong predictions about the uh, rapture that didn't come about. And, and as a result of that, a lot of people get hurt and disheartened. And I think even we as Christians get a bit cynical in that regard. So why are we going to start a series on prophecy? Well, let me give you three reasons uh, I think are worthy for a study on prophecy. The first is this. If God has been gracious enough to, uh, to, to allow us to eavesdrop on the future, certainly we should be faithful in mastering what he's revealed. There's, there must be something there that would be of great encouragement to us. And we should not let the abuses of some and the exaggerations of others plus the fact that at times prophecy is wrapped in figurative imagery that can be, uh, at points, difficult to understand, keep us from wanting to familiarize ourselves with what God has, in fact, said. Because prophecy says that the future is certain. It's not something that is, is uh, uh, well, however fate would have it, or it's case sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be. No, prophecy says that it's not that way, and it's not out of control, but the future is certain. And it should be of encouragement to those people who name the name of Christ. Secondly, to uh, another reason I think that it's worth studying prophecy is this. Prophecy is extremely encouraging and uplifting in times of trouble. In the 60s, it was encouraging to me when it seemed like our whole nation was coming unraveled. But I have the feeling that the 90s are shaping up to be a lot like the 60s. Uh, maybe even more so. We have all kinds of changes that are occurring in our world, uh, not just in our nation. In the 60s, it was just uh, a youth movement, a student youth movement within our country. Uh, but today, where we used to have this kind of the standoff between communism and the free world, uh, but it created a, a stability of sorts. Now, as communism comes unravel, we've got a world that really is in great transition. And I think that anybody, it doesn't take a prophet to look into the 90s and say, unless somehow we get a hold on all this, which we probably want, there's going to be a lot of revolution and war and terrorism and upheaval and uh, maybe economic collapse, uh, we're entering a 10-year period that is going to be really volatile, and it will cause high anxiety, even for the people of God, as we see these things taking place. And yet what prophecy does, it assures us that though things look out of control, they are in fact in control. In John Bunyan's uh, book, Pilgrim's Progress, he talks about this young lad who's heading to what Bunyan calls the celestial city. And as Pilgrim is on his way, he has to pa pass through this extremely scary forest. And in the forest are all kinds of lions and tigers. And yet he proceeds by faith along this narrow path, even though he can hear the roars of the lions and tigers in the forest. How, how was he able to keep going forward towards the celestial city rather than be paralyzed with fear? Well, in Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, it's because Pilgrim had this little book, and in it, it said that the lions were chained. You know, when you enter into times of trouble and transition, 
and it seems like everything is getting out of control, it's good to keep proceeding forward as a Christian because you have a book that says pretty much the same thing. It says that the lions are chained. You don't need to be afraid. God is in control of this world and where it's going and what is taking place, no matter how dark some days look to us, and that's of great encouragement. I think another worthy reason is that we all need from time to time to feel the supernatural character of this book that we hold called the Bible. And I think prophecy more than any other subject has a way of kind of revealing to us the supernatural character of this great book. Many of you maybe have never felt that. Maybe you're a new Christian and you've never done a study on prophecy. Maybe for many of you, some of the things I'm going to say is familiar ground but I think we can all be encouraged by reviewing that material again, lest we become what I call present-minded believers. And that's a curse. See, when you get so caught up in the present that all there is in your life is the present, then we become very short-sighted in our decision-making. We become very short-sighted in... In, in what's going around us and the things we should do and why we should do it. We tend to fall back into selfishness and me-only concerns. We tend to trade experience for character because character is built over a long period of time and is rewarded at the end. But if we lose sight of the end, then all that's worth living for today is experience. It's real easy to sacrifice character for experience or the eternal for the now. But prophecy has a way of pulling your eyes up and looking over the landscape and realizing there's more than just the present. There's the future, and it's a real future, and it's fixed, and it's certain, and it's asking something of you who's heading there. Well, I think those are some good reasons for studying it. I also think that we are living in a time that has some signs of special interest uh, at least to me and I hope to you, because uh, there are some events that are occurring in our world that has a, uh, a certain flavor in relationship to biblical prophecy. And I want to kind of review some of those things because I think they're worth considering for us. You know, the Bible makes some incredible statements about what is going to occur. And uh, probably the greatest prophecy, apart from the Lord Jesus himself, is the prophecy that the Old Testament makes concerning the return of Israel to the land of Palestine. Now, for some of you, that's kind of almost old hat, and that shouldn't be. We sometimes forget the incredible miracle that's wrapped up with a group of people who had been out of their land for 2,000 years coming back to the land of Palestine. It's, it's, it's wondrous. It's, it's awesome in its in its understanding and scrutiny when you think about it, but it's even more awesome when we know that there were men in the Old Testament who predicted that 2,000 and 3,000 years ago. Let's go back 2,700 years to the book of Amos. Uh, you might just turn over there. It's towards the end of your Old Testament, and you'll come across that little book wedged in with these other minor prophets. And as you're turning there, let me just say that uh, this uh, book of Amos is an interesting one because it is 
a book denouncing the sins of both Israel and all the nations that were surrounding Israel. And if you were a Jew reading the book of Amos, you would pick it up and it starts out with God saying how he's going to obliterate the nation of Edom and then he's going to destroy Tyre and then he's going to uh, destroy Moab and Amnon and all these other pagan nations. And as a Jew, you'd probably be reading that letter and going, great, he's going to get rid of the heathens. The only problem is you come to about chapter 3 and then Amos says, and God's going to destroy Israel too. And then he goes into great detail in the next few chapters about how he's going to destroy Israel. And as a Jew, you'd be going, now wait a minute. I thought you said through our father Abraham that we were going to be this great people forever and we were going to have this land. You had promised it to us. And here you are saying that you're going to destroy us. And yet that's exactly what Amos does. But when he gets to the last chapter, chapter 9, the prophet gives one glimmer of hope for the future. Notice in verse 8 of chapter 9, at the very end, he says, Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. Not like these other nations. I'm not going to totally destroy you. In fact, he even looks even further out in verse 14, and he says that he will restore Israel at some point after he's destroyed them. Notice in verse 14, he says, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land. You know, when Amos wrote that 2,700 years ago, they weren't even out of the land. But they were about to be. He was telling them, you're about to be destroyed. And certainly they were taken out of the land. But he looks down through the annals of history and says, but there is going to come a place where you will come back into the land. If you read the prophet Ezekiel, he describes it this way. God gives him this vision of all these dry bones, Ezekiel 37. And he says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these dry bones live? And if Ezekiel was honest, he would have said, no, they can't. Those dry bones, by the way, represented the dispersal of Israel for hundreds of years. And yet the prophet saw in this vision these dry bones ultimately come together and what stood before them were the bones and then the flesh put on the bones and then in time this exceedingly great army and then God tells the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel, this is my people Israel whom I will bring back from all over the world and I will put them in their land. Well, that's easy for us to look back on now because they are in the land. But you know, we forget, at least we forget the supernaturalness of these statements when you think, what would it have felt like if you were a Jew and the centuries began to roll by once your great nation was destroyed by the legions of Rome in 70 A.D.? And then it gets to be 200 A.D. and 400 A.D. and 600 A.D. and 1,000 A.D. and you're not in the land. Would you believe these ancient oracles? How about 1,300 A.D.? 1,500 A.D.? 1,800 A.D.? And you're still not in the land. Could you believe these statements? You know what Christians started to do about 1,800 A.D. who were Bible-believing? They would read statements like this and they would say, well... Maybe God didn't mean to literally fulfill Israel this way. Maybe it's a spiritual fulfillment. And yet there they were. These 
ancient prophets like Daniel and Ezekiel and Amos and others saying, no, no, Israel will go back in the land. And yet now it's 1,800 years and they've not been in the land. Could you believe? You know, this week I went back and I kind of rambled through some of my books in my library and I pulled out uh, Charles Hodge's uh, Systematic Theology. You may not be familiar with the name Charles Hodge. He was a great American theologian. Uh, he was one of the great theologians at Princeton University. He was world-renowned for his theology and his writings. And uh, I picked up volume three of his great systematic theology, and I looked up under there uh, his section on last things. And lo and behold, there was a section in the book that was entitled this way, Are the Jews to be restored to their own land? Now, you know, that's a great question for a guy in 1825. Here's his answer. The argument from the ancient prophecies of the Old Testament is invalid because it would prove too much. If these prophecies foretell a literal restoration of Israel, they foretell that the temple is to be rebuilt, the priesthood restored, sacrifices again offered and that the whole mosaic ritual is to be observed in all its details. It is utterly inconsistent with the character of the gospel that there should be a renewed inauguration of Judaism within the pale of the Christian church. In other words, as Hodge looked down through history, 1800 years, he said, there's no way these prophecies could be literal. They must be spiritual. Israel couldn't come back to the land. So his answer was no. And yet Jeremiah the prophet says in Jeremiah 31, as long as there's a sun in the sky, as long as there's stars at night, Israel will be a nation. It says that in Jeremiah 31. You notice that when Hodge argue, Hodges argues against Israel becoming a nation, he says, listen, if they're going to be a nation, if those prophecies are literal, then they've got to have a temple because there are prophecies about Israel having a temple too. And I don't see that. That seems inconsistent with the gospel. I thought the temple and all that had been done away with. That's his argument. Well, the Bible does prophesy that Israel will be in the land. It also prophesies that there will be a temple built in Israel. Uh, that's almost kind of common thinking for an apostle in the New Testament age. For instance, turn over to 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. Because in 2 Thessalonians, it mentions a restored temple. Now you're probably asking, now wait a minute, are you saying that in Israel today there's going to be a temple? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Now, is there a temple? No, there's not. But the Bible has prophesied that there will be. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 2, or excuse me, verse 3. Uh, Paul, by the way, is talking about the end times, and he's talking about this man of lawlessness who's going to appear. We know him in other places as the Antichrist. And uh, he says in verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, and the it that he's referring to up in verse 1, is the coming of Jesus Christ. For the coming of Jesus Christ will not come unless the apostasy, the falling away, comes first, and the man of lawlessness, that is, Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, 
who opposes, verse 4, and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat, where? In the temple. Now, when Paul wrote these words, there was a temple, a Jewish temple. But shortly after this, the legions of Rome marched in, besieged the city of Jerusalem, and destroyed it, and tore down the temple and plowed up the city. And it's not been rebuilt since. Now, in Jerusalem today, there is a, a religious shrine on the temple site. It's the Mosque of Omar uh, for the faith of Islam. But there's no Jewish temple. Paul is speaking of a time yet future to him that's still future to us. He says there's an antichrist, a, a man of lawlessness that's coming who's going to exalt himself above the world. And where is he going to do that? In a temple. Well, that means there's got to be a temple in Israel for him to do that. When I was a young Christian uh, studying these prophecies, and, and I had that told to me as well, and certainly it's there in the Scripture, uh, there were all kinds of rumors running rampant in 1969 that Israel was going to rebuild her temple. And we were said that they were gathering the stone and all this stuff, and all of it proved to be just malicious gossip. It really wounded me as a young Christian to find that out, that these were just rumors. And of course, anytime you're studying prophecy, it's kind of like a piece of meat. You've got to cut all the fat off to really get to the truth. And a lot of the stuff surrounding it is a lot of rumor and superstition. It always tends to barnacle around true prophecy. And of course, all those statements about the temple back in 1969 were just out-and-out out gossip. And that's one of the reasons I quit studying it. Anytime you study prophecy, you need to look at the facts. So I want to tell you a few facts about the temple and Israel. And I got these, and some of you probably saw this several months ago, right out of Time magazine again. Uh, there was an article that really grabbed my attention uh, in the October 16th issue of Time, and it was entitled, Is It Time for a New Temple? Well, that kind of got my attention as someone who remembered studying all the stuff that was just rumor. So I read this article, and here's some of the things it had to say. It said today in Israel they have organized a task force. They call it the Temple Institute. And its leader, Zev Golan, says its purpose is this. Our task is to advance the cause of the temple and prepare for its establishment, not just talk about it any longer. The Institute for the last few years has been painstakingly reconstructing, according to biblical specifications that are found in the Old Testament, the instruments that were used in temple music, the implements that were used in the temple sacrifices, so that when a temple is built, they will have all the implements and instruments that the Old Testament says is necessary to conduct temple worship. For instance, they've already constructed, and they even had pictures in the Time magazine of the lyre and the harp, all constructed according to biblical specifications, and 38 other implements that would be used in temple ceremonies. They've also uh, woven together priestly vestments for the priest to wear according to biblical specifications. And as, as directed by the Bible, these garments were to be made by hand with flax spun into six-stranded threads. And they've done that so that the priest could wear them when the temple is ultimately built. There are also two Talmudic schools now in operation near the Western Wailing Wall. And there are 200 students who are searching the family lineages of the Jewish people, hoping to find some way of discerning 
people who are in the line of Levi, the priestly line. And that's going to be very difficult since all the genealogical records that we know of were destroyed when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. But nonetheless, the search is on to somehow prove who can be in the line of Levi so that there can be priests who can serve in the temple. And I bet some way they'll come up with a way of discerning that. In Numbers 19, it says that the priests were to purify their bodies with the cremated ashes of an unblemished red heifer. You can almost see some prophecy of Christ in that. But nonetheless, that was what the requirements were for a priest to be purified before he could serve. This last August, the chief rabbinate in Israel spent two weeks scouting Europe for red heifer embryos. Now, these are not rumors. These are documented facts. So that they could bring these embryos back to Israel and implant them in cattle on cattle ranches in Israel. The article in Time concludes with this quote from Golan on the temple. He says, No one can say how, and no one wants to do it by force, but sooner or later the temple will be done, and we will be ready for it. Well, that shouldn't catch any of us by surprise, because 2,000 years ago the Bible said that there would be a third temple. And I can tell you all tonight, there will be a third temple in Israel. You can count on it. Those are two incredible prophecies. There's a third prophecy as well that kind of are interesting in light of the times in which we live, and that is this. The Bible prophesies a key alignment of nations, particularly around Europe. Uh, we're going to talk much more about this when we get into our study in the book of Daniel. But the Bible has set forth that there is a coming world empire that will, well, it will basically have the same outline geographically as the old Roman Empire, except this particular empire will be a loosely connected federation of nations. Uh, the Bible even says how many. It says ten who will become the greatest power on the face of the earth. Well, we know from history that uh, when Daniel spoke those words, there was not even such a thing as a Roman Empire. That was still several thousand years to his future. And yet there's been a Roman Empire and then subsequently the demise of the Roman Empire. And yet all the way through the Dark Ages, if you read anything about history, there was always these attempts to revive the empire in Rome. Uh, Charlemagne probably came the closest in the 10th century in creating the Holy Roman Empire for a time, for a season. But in 1957, there was a, a European conference of nations, and they initialed an agreement called the Treaty of Rome. And the Treaty of Rome was an agreement to bring the states of Europe together economically as well as politically. Now, what has occurred since the Treaty of Rome is that we've had the common market come about. And for a while, there were 10 nations in the common market. Now, there are 12 nations comprising the common market. But the unity around Europe, which again comprised basically this outline of the Roman Empire, is taking an even greater unification in 1992 when they moved from the common market community to the Euro state. And some of you have probably been reading about that. There's been much said uh, in uh, business magazines and uh, different other kinds of 
articles because of the immense power Eurostate will bring about when these nations align themselves in a much tighter political and economic community. All over Europe, starting in 1992, if they go according to schedule, and they probably won't, but if they do, what you will see is all the trade barriers come down between the uh, now competing nations. They will have a single currency that they will use. You can travel throughout Europe without visas from nation to nation. They will have a central European parliament that will give leadership over all Europe, somewhat like our federal government does to the United States. Uh, the fact is the uh, parliament has already been created and is meeting uh, presently in Brussels, Belgium to make uh, conclusions about um, this new European community. You know, the combined GNP of Eurostate will surpass that of the United States. It will be the greatest economic power on the face of the earth if it goes according to plan in 1992. And that's without including the unification of the Germanys. Germany is part of Eurostate. But again, I should say, none of that should surprise us that this prophet Daniel, looking into history 2,500 years beyond himself, could begin to make statements about an empire that would ultimately result in a federation of nations in the approximate uh, vicinity that Europe now stands. That shouldn't surprise us. And the reason it shouldn't surprise us is because this is a supernatural book. There's a fourth prophecy. You might turn over to second. Uh, Timothy, since you're probably already still in Thessalonians, but in 2 Timothy, we get another hint of the end times as well in this prophetic drama, and that is the Bible says that there will be a great moral disintegration in the last days, and that it will be a moral disintegration that will be wrapped rather ingeniously with religion. <laughs> That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Moral disintegration and religion. And yet that's what the last days will look like. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, Paul says to Timothy, still looking future now, he says, but realize this, Timothy, that in the last days, difficult times will come. You might circle the word difficult just for a moment. The word difficult is an unusual Greek word. It's only used one other place in the Bible, and that's over in Matthew chapter 8. And in Matthew chapter 8, this word is used in describing these two men who are demon-possessed, and they come out to meet Jesus, and as they do, it says that these men were exceedingly violent. And the word exceedingly violent in Greek is the same word that's used in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, for the word difficult. It's not just difficult days ahead. They are days that will be exceedingly violent. Maybe we could use the word savage or barbaric. Now look at the description of these days that occur starting in verse 2. Because it tells you how it's going to be. It says that men will be lovers of self and lovers of money, and boastful, and arrogant, and revilers. They will be disobedient to parents, and ungrateful, and unholy, and unloving, and irreconcilable. They will be malicious gossip. They won't have self-control. They will be brutal. They will be haters of good, treacherous, reckless, 
conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now look up here for a moment. They will be all those things and they'll be religious too. Look at verse 5. Holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. That's what the last days are going to look like. That's the, that's the way the atmosphere will be charged in the days before the coming of Christ. And no one will bring that about better. No one will lead that charge of both immorality and religion better than Antichrist. That's why, remember in 2 Thessalonians, he's called the man of lawlessness. He will be this charismatic figure who will have a way about him that will mesmerize millions and he will mix to perfection a perfect blend of sin and selfishness and spirituality all together, real uniquely. And he will offer it to the world. And the world will say, that's exactly what we want. We can do what we want and feel justified in doing it because it's spiritual to boot. Well, all of this is some of the unique features of what our Bible looks forward to. Some of these things we've seen actually fulfilled before our very eyes. Some things are still yet future, but all of these things set the Bible apart as an extremely unique book, and it should affect how you think and how you feel and how you act in the day-to-day. -day. Now, on your outline, I said I've got listed there some differences prophecy should make. Let me give you three differences that I think prophecy should make for each one of us. First of all, prophecy should strengthen our trust in the Bible. Uh, I want to keep pressing the point that there is no book in literature anywhere that you could hold up with these kind of prophetic statements and feel certain and secure. The Bible is an extremely unique book. There's no place that has prophecies like the ones I've been reading that are so clear and cogent. Most Ancient prophecies, as I've said, are riddles, and they don't make much sense, and you're not sure if you can decipher them or not. But that's not true with the Old Testament or the New. They're very clear. And besides, where else can you go in all of literature that you can find a book that has futuristic statements like these that also have the support, rather than the refutation, the support of history and archaeology and science? Remember, it was carbon-14 dating that was applied to the walls of Jericho, not some wild-eyed fanatic. See? It's history that looks back on Jesus Christ and says with great documentation, Jesus Christ walked the planet Earth. He was real. He wasn't a myth of some Christian fanatics. See, you have all kinds of support to the things that the Bible has said. And where else can you find these futuristic statements in any other place in literature that you can have such accuracy and such certainty attached to them? Well, the answer is nowhere. Nowhere. This Bible is the book of books. And it should encourage us. And it should inspire us. And it should elicit from us our time and our effort and trust. The second difference it should make 
is that it should call from us a sense of spiritual responsibility rather than negligence. In other words, having this treasure in our hands, this great book, there should be something about it that should tell us we need to become spiritually responsible to its contents. In Dublin, Ireland, towards the end of the 19th century, Thomas Huxley was kind of a great advocate for Darwin. And he loved to crucify Christians. And he was delivering a series of lectures there uh, in Dublin in which he had been blistering Christianity. And at the end of his talks, he jumped in a carriage and he was late for his uh, destination. He thought the carriage driver knew where his destination was. So all he yelled to him was this, hurry, I'll be late, drive fast. And so the carriage bolted across Dublin. And about 10 minutes later, as Huxley looked out the window, he realized that the driver was going in the wrong direction. And so he yelled to the driver, he said, do you know where you're going? And the driver yelled back, no, your honor, but I am driving very fast. <laughs> you know, that is a perfect illustration of many of us. It really is. We've got all this prophetic direction that says that history is not just moving along in haphazard patterns. History is moving along just as God has directed it and ordained it and predetermined it with an absolute conclusion at the end that you can bank on. And he's told us that. And he's given us biblical guidelines for how we're to live our life now in light of that which is so certain. But let me ask you the question. Do you know where you're going? If God asked you that, do you know where you're going, would you reply, no, Your Honor, but I am going very fast. That's our world today. We're going very fast. And the companion that sits next to fast, that always accompanies fast, is the companion called futility. We go in all kinds of circles, in all different kinds of directions, but God doesn't want us necessarily to go fast. He wants us to go forward towards spiritual responsibility, towards spiritual life and service in light of that which he's already told us is going to happen. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. I think he states it as well as anybody. In 2 Peter 3, Peter is talking about the end Look at verse 10. Now he's talking about the end end here. But he makes a statement in reference to that that I think speaks to the point I just made. Verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. You see, it's not going to be the sun that's going to finally burn out and end life on planet Earth. It's going to be the coming of the S-O-N sun that's going to end everything. He says, and you know that, and because you know that, look at verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, 
What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That's a great question. That's a great statement. If everything's going to the end this way, and we know what it's going to be like at the end, it should affect how we live now. That's what he's saying. Now that even takes on greater color with this third difference I would like to give you and the last one. Prophecy should build our confidence that the future belongs to the righteous only. To the righteous only. Look at verse 13 in that same chapter. It says, but according to his promise, excuse me, it does say chapter 13, verse 13. It says, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which what dwells? Righteousness dwells. Not unrighteousness. So all of history is being moved along, borne along by God to end with this place, this domain in which righteousness dwells. And Peter says, we have God's promise on that. Now the reason I state that is knowing this, I don't want to be cultivating tastes that are not going to be a part of a kingdom of righteousness. I don't want to be cultivating distaste. I don't want to get to eternity and find out that I'm out of sync with the taste of eternity. Because the taste of eternity are going to be righteous and righteousness, not unrighteousness. So if I spend all my time on unrighteous things, cultivating a now-only mentality, when history moves and bears me along to the end, and I find that the end is only for the righteous, where does that leave me? See, it leaves me out of sync with tastes and desires and longings that don't fit the kingdom that God is moving all history to. That's where it leaves me. Look with me as we conclude with at the book of Revelation, chapter 21. In chapter 21, in verse 6, Jesus is speaking to the Apostle John. And he says to him concerning this new heavens and new earth, he says in verse 6, it is done. You've heard the done deal? That's what he's saying here. This is a done deal. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. That is, if you're not a Christian here tonight, what he's saying is, if you want to know me, I'll give you myself without cost. That's for the non-Christian to become a Christian. But then look at verse 7. He speaks to the person who is a Christian. He says, He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. In other words, if I'm moving and cultivating these tastes, there's something real special about overcoming in this world, in this life, with all its distaste for the kingdom. There's something special. I get this recognition at the end of being God because I've lived and overcome for Him. But then look at the next verse. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons 
and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. Look at their part. It will be the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Look over in chapter 22, verse 7. And behold, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Happy is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Well, that's really what prophecy is all about. Happy is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And the prophecy of this book says that God is moving us towards a righteous kingdom. And the people who will be happiest there will be people who are cultivating righteousness right now. That's what he's saying. You know, we will uh, embark upon a study right after Easter of prophecy, and I'll be walking us through these prophetic sections of Daniel in which they tell us the future of us, the Gentiles, and also uh, Israel as a nation. And then while I'm doing that, Bill Parkinson and Bill Wellens will be taking the life of the prophets and in particular the life of Daniel, and looking at it from a personal perspective and showing you and me how them knowing the future affected them in the day-to-day -day of their lives. And I think it will be a great study for us to have. But I want you to know, just as I've told you in advance about the series, this book has told you in advance how everything's going to come about and how you're to live your life. So you don't want to miss it. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.